Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, this is a Tuesday episode. So with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. How are you? I'm good. How was your weekend? You had a birthday. We're not supposed to talk about weekends anymore, remember? Why? That was our new rule. Oh, sorry. No weekends. Okay. <laughs> I hope you had a terrible weekend. Let's go into the questions. I did, because Duke lost, but we're going to talk about that later. Bradley has one of his sort of hyperactive um, uh, weekends, at least as it, as it uh, applied to me, because he sent me about 20 things to read. And, and then promptly started throwing up with food poisoning right after that. Do you that. think those things were related? I think they might have been. Okay. Yeah. So so one of the things we want to talk about is this, is this uh, article in the Washington Post about how now the headline, there's a couple things I want to ask you specifically about the headline, but the, fa- the headline is Facebook paid GOP firm to malign TikTok. Um, why don't you explain what's going on there? Yeah, then, I mean, look, so, and the reason... Uh, that I put this on the list is because I just want to bring us back to reality a little bit. So there's a firm called Targeted Victory. Are there a firm you're familiar with before this? I knew I, when I saw the CEO's name, I knew him. Um, but no, I mean, look, I, I haven't worked at the consulting firm in a while, and and typically speaking, we try to stay out of DC type things when we can. So I don't think we interact with them all that much. But I, I can't say for sure that we've never been on a campaign with them. Okay. But but e- either way, they were hired by Facebook, who is obviously losing lots of users on Instagram to TikTok, right? right. Probably users on Facebook as well. To create some trouble for TikTok, right? And to show that they are, you know, Facebook is constantly portrayed as bad actors, which they are, right? right. They deserve all of the criticism they get all the time, but TikTok's <laughs> not so great either. And I understand Facebook. Aren't they the same? Yeah. So I understand Facebook's frustration when Mark Zuckerberg sits there and sees himself as one of the most hated people in the world. And TikTok is just sort of soaring when they're basically the same thing. And so they did what lots of people do in not just politics, but just in the corporate world globally, which is they said, we have a rival. We think that they're getting an unfairly advantageous treatment. Right. We want to even the score. Right. Like, that's fucking just not not only politics 101, that's business 101. <laughs> and like, is the, it the, business 101 to go and hire a kind of dirty tricks firm? I mean, I may be targeted. First of all, I'm not sure that they're a dirty tricks firm. Like, right. I don't, that wasn't my impression of them. No, I, that's this. unfair. I'm sorry. Targeted victory is not necessarily dirty, but they but they do these sort of like. How, how is it different when Coke and Pepsi directly ran ads attacking each other? Well, do they? But they were talking about like the taste, right? Of the of the beverage. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't the, like there's corporate malfeasance in, in inside a Pepsi, that's, right? But if if Coke thought that that was the best angle to go with Pepsi, they would have, right? Do you think Coke was too ethical for that? No. Well, I think there's a they product just, versus product well, kind of well, competitiveness. It's, it's, it's the audience, right? So for consumers. I, you know, I don't drink either soda, but if I did, I would care about which taste. <laughs> I would like to. I actually love the way soda tastes, but I don't drink it. Um, but it would you, be wait. You never drink it? Very, very, very rarely. Okay. Especially after Lyle brought me a Coke Zero yesterday because I was sick and I threw that up too. Uh, so that was yeah, so this you know, is a lo- lovely episode. Okay, huh? no more no throw more up, vomiting no, talk. Yep, um, that's it. Reach so, but look, we as the audience for that particular fight are the consumers, and right. we would care about taste. Right. In this case, the audience is really. Regulators, pundits, media, you know, kind of people in and around the world right. uh, of deciding how tech should operate. And they care about things like corporate malfeasance or security protocols or anything else. And so, look, I, I just I just don't I don't like Facebook. I criticize Facebook on this podcast all the time. Um, I think they should be regulated much more strenuously than they are. But 
the notion that one company is is fighting with a rival and a challenger and trying to sort of you know muddy things up like that's just normal. Oh, like, so you don't, okay. So your overall point of this is like a non. It's nothing. It's just because it's Facebook. You know, the Washington Post and everyone else who wrote about this is losing their mind. Like, oh, we have a great story. We've caught them in yet another lie. But it's not really a lie. This is just basic practice. And and look, here's the fundamental problem though. It's not even that. The Washington Post overreacted, or that Facebook did or didn't do something wrong. It's that when we live in a world with virtually no tech regulation, this is what it comes down to, right? One of the reasons why Facebook is doing this is because neither they nor TikTok are regulated in terms of content, in terms of privacy, in terms of data monetization, in terms of data portability, um, or anything else. And so as a result, it's a total free for all. And this is what, you know, the scrum results in. If you want better behavior, don't worry about like what political consulting firm is being hired by some company. And to be clear, we've never been hired by any of these firms to do anything like this. But, um, but we would. Um, you would. Yeah. What the fuck do I care? Between <laughs> Facebook and TikTok, <laughs> like I don't think we would work for Facebook just because it would feel so hypocritical after all of the right. Well, they wouldn't hire you. They would also probably presumably hate me. Right. But like overall, yeah, yeah. I don't. I really don't see an issue with it at all. Um, but fundamentally, if the U.S. government did its job and regulated tech in the same way that it should be, in the way that the EU and other areas have, um, we wouldn't have this problem in the first place. So, so they're, they're pointing fingers in the wrong place. Okay, let me ask you two related questions. One part of the headline, big deal, is it's a GOP firm, targeted victories. At right. What's, what's the relevance of that? None whatsoever, okay. other, other than the fact that you know, Washington Post, while not quite as bad as the New York Times, is still living in its world where its readers see GOP as synonymous with like Hitler or Nazi or evil or something like that. <laughs> And so, therefore, it's just become just another a, way of piling on, kind of. Yeah, I mean, so what if it's a G? By the way, I can guarantee you there are twenty-five Democratic political consulting firms at this very moment engaged in something similar. Right. Right. So, and so twenty-five of the Republican firms too. There's one little uh, one little stat at the end of the article. It says Meta, which is Facebook's parent, outspends all but six of the nation's biggest companies and industry groups in federal lobbying, pay more than paying more than twenty million dollars last year, according to data compiled by Open Secrets. Well, like, but what's what's remarkable there is that's time. It's not that much, but but even beyond that, it's, it's got to be they're lobbying budget. Can't well, be hold 20 on, million. You, it's a problem again. The reporters right. the the budget's not twenty million. The budget that's spent on Washington D.C. lobbyists. Um, that you can count is 20 million, right? Which, because as we've discussed it before in the podcast, like there's 535 members of Congress, there's only so many lobbies you can hire to talk to them, right? Um, so, but this doesn't take into account polling and research and digital ads and TV ads and and podcasts. And so this is what the money that's just going directly this is the direct into the pocket of the inside game. Yes, yeah. so you got to imagine it's at least 10 to one. Five, okay. at least five or ten to one. But but here's the next point. If Facebook is spending $100 or $200 million a Still year. Still nothing for them. Yeah, whoever's in charge of it is fucking terrible at their job. I guess it's Nick Clegg right now because – and it was Sheryl Sandberg before that and a bunch of other people that she'd put in there and then removed because they're one of the most hated companies out there. Um, they've actually managed to unite both parties against them, um, and yet they spend all of this money. And I think that their rationale would be, look, for as long as the law stays the way it is, we make a ton of money. Therefore, the only thing in our interest is to reject and protect us, ourselves from any type of regulation ever. And these $20 million worth of lobbyists are helping kill any kind of regulation. Therefore, it's worth it. And that might be true. But overall, you'd like to think that if you're spending that kind of historic money, you're actually making progress too. Right. 
Um, it's funny, last night we were walking to dinner, one of my daughters uh, was talking to me about the movie The Social Network, mm-hmm. asked me what I thought of it, and then she just sort of said that, um, I can't remember if it was really a question or a statement on her part, but she's like, isn't Facebook doomed because the stock price is going down, they can't keep their best employees? And I was like, where, where did insightful. you? Where did she get that from? I, I think she might have gotten it from TikTok. Because, um, ah, so maybe they're doing it too. Well, that was I, 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 I was thinking about this morning, and I was like, why was she talking about that? Um, I mean, she's not. I, I try oh, to get them to. I, I, well, I hate to admit this to you, but we do get the the paper version of the New York Times delivered to our house. Well, we we, we actually do too, because Harper gets it. Oh, you do? Yeah. Do you like kick it like out? No, the door, I just. Like, you know, it's funny. We subscribe physically to the New York Post, the Washington Post, and the New York Times under Harper's view that she wants the kids on screens less. Right. None of those newspapers are ever opened up because everyone reads them online and they go right in the recycling. Do the kids read the newspapers online? Uh, La- yeah, yeah. I mean, Lala and I read the post together. We right. read on the iPad. Oh, you do it on the iPad? Yeah, it's just easier than going downstairs to get the paper. And Abby, so it's it's downstairs for you. Yeah, Abby uh-huh. is getting. Yeah, Abby and Lala both. I think the summer short next day getting news online. They seem to know about stuff, just like just like which either Scarlett or Orly did. You know, like so. Yeah. Did you do the New York Post with Lyle this morning? Yeah, you did. Yeah. What, what's the big story in the New York Post? I feel like I haven't seen it in a few days. <sighs> you know, there's a bunch of Putin stuff. Um, They're all over Adams. They were not all over Adam. In fact, they were praising him for his anti-gun unit, which is at least being more aggressive than we were under Blasio. Right. And their big thing was that um, they have a poll that says that Kathy Hochul is only beating Lee Zeldin by 37 to 31 or so. Or maybe it was last, maybe it was four points. Um, now, it was a GOP polling firm that I've never heard of before. So whether or not those results are in any way accurate, I have no idea. Um, nor has Lee Zeldin won the primary yet either but but what it's all i think where it's relevant is it's going to be a big republican year people are really unhappy and if in new york state you think? just across the country right not enough to topple the governor of new york i don't think but if the governor of new york only wins by six that means in 10 other places in a purple state the democratic candidate for senator or governor or house loses right, right? so I, I do think it's just emblematic of a far larger trend and look again we've talked about this a lot some of it is biden's fault but but by and large i don't even think it's so much the actions of biden or joe manchin or whoever else it's the fact that we live in a world where everyone is perennially upset and the ways that we which we are upset are magnified so instantly and so dramatically that we can't climb out of this um we're going to backtrack a little bit to the the same issue that we were talking about with Facebook because there was another article you sent me from the Wall Street Journal um, about Microsoft trying to get their um, acquisition of Activision approved and did a sort of uh, description. Yeah, so or I, I sent that to you. Actually, I should have explained it more. In in if you read through it, it talks about a campaign that Microsoft ran called Scroogle, run by the right. inf- infamous or famous Mark Penn. I mean, how you want to look at him? Um, <laughs> how do you look at him? You know, I, I actually. I've never really worked with Mark, but I know him. Mm-hmm. Um, and my interactions with him have always actually been good. Uh-huh. And you can't deny how much he's accomplished, right? right? Clearly, there are some issues there. But o- overall, I don't, the point of this podcast is not to become a, a Mark Penn defense. But um, given all the things said about him over the years, like he's built like a really, really successful company. And what he does with his money, I don't know. Maybe he does nothing good for the world with it whatsoever. Right. Um, but but he, he's a legitimate entrepreneur, um, which to me is much more impressive than being a legitimate political consultant. Um, so the point was this, though. So Penn worked at Microsoft. He's, he's good, close friends with Bomber. And Bomber hired him to come over to Microsoft. Right. And they ran a campaign called Scroogle to directly go at Google in order to promote 
Bing, which I don't know that anyone has ever used Bing, but you know that was their goal. It's their search engine. Um, Does Bing still exist? I don't know. Probably. I hope not. Um, <laughs> maybe. Uh, the point is this. Microsoft is now held up on Capitol Hill. It's like, these are the good guys. They know how to right. behave and do it right. They did the exact same shit. And then for all we know, they've The exact some, same shit you mean with Facebook yeah, exactly. targeting victory and all exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Other than maybe that their consultants weren't Republicans, but so what? Like, you know, so, so ba- basically overall, um, the point is this is normal behavior. And if you don't like it, change the rules to better regulate these companies. Don't just bitch and moan because someone hired a Republican firm. I mean, but you're, you're never going to change the rules to an extent where there won't be. Uh, Incentives for firms to attack each other. I mean, you can't. For sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but at the end of the day, whatever harm Facebook was doing with its little campaign is one one millionth of the harm that they do every single day by their normal course of actions. Okay. And if those were regulated, that harm would go down. Well, let's go back to the Microsoft thing though, because so they 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 abandoned the the sort of Steve Ballmer confrontational it wasn't approach working. for a little while. But then I guess the the point of the story was that even though they play really nice in Washington, they have this they've they've sort of returned to some of their more sort of confrontational. Yeah, because because you have to be, right? I mean, their 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 tenor in Washington changed because they were the first company you know, in, in recent modern history, sued in the tech world for antitrust violations. Right. There was a trial in the in the late 90s. Um, government won, but didn't really result in, in dramatic change in Microsoft. Government won, right? Yeah, I'm 99.9% sure of that. But as a result, it changed their approach to Washington to sort of a friendlier, ask for permission, not beg for forgiveness approach. But at the end of the day, this is a trillion-dollar corporation. It's one of the four or five biggest corporations in the world, and they are just as tough and just as ruthless as everyone else. So the judge did uh, rule that Microsoft violated parts of the Sherman Antitrust Act and ordered that the company be broken up into two entities, but uh, Microsoft won on appeal. Yeah, okay. So there we go. I was going to say, I was like, I, so I, I was, what were the I remember, two entities? I, I remember them it. losing, but that's what I thought. But, so there but was what micro happened? and then there was soft. Right, exactly. One of each. Yeah, so <laughs> nothing happened. Um, anyway, so that's your question. Well, it's interesting that Microsoft goes from, like, I, I mean, it feels like Microsoft's been almost more successful since then. Um, you know, it looked like when they were going after them that they, they were sort of fighting yesterday's battle. That you know that that uh, the sort of Microsoft approach was was sort of waning. But now, it, what's interesting also, they they figured out their segments in an interesting way, right? Which is they do lots of boring stuff like Microsoft Word that nobody cares all, about, all but generates products, right? fucking billions and billions and billions of dollars a year in profits, right? right? Then they're not trying to go at consumers anymore in the traditional search engine, social media, kind of Google, Facebook, Twitter fashion. Right, and they're, right. st- they're kind of going for gamers, right? So they created the Xbox, which is a very successful product. Uh, they just bought Activision for, I don't know, $67 billion. $75 billion, dollars, whatever yeah. the number was. I think it's, that's what it is. Um, and I think what they're really looking at is not just gaming, but but the metaverse itself, right? And when they bought Activision, their big argument was like, look, this is really, for us, our biggest uh, step into the metaverse, where we have the ability to create all of these environments through the activism studio, Activision Studio, and model and everything else. And so, um, you know, they may have sat out ultimately after kind of losing initially some of the more current uh, approaches that tech companies are using to make money. Um, but I think that they have built an infrastructure that's incredibly profitable and stable. And I think that if you told me they're the ones that win the metaverse, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Win the metaverse. Um, they're not making TV shows, Microsoft. That's kind of interesting. But yeah, what's I, I mean? So, but other than 
I guess if you're Apple, you want to keep everyone on your platform as much as possible, right? So that's why you're losing money making TV shows. If you're Amazon, is there a point to it other than Bezos' ego? Um, well, but it's the same thing, right? They want to be, they want people to live on Amazon, right? Yeah, okay, I mean, fine, fair enough, right? Um, but if you're Microsoft, it's not a platform in that way. It's not a shot. It's not an e-commerce site. It's it's not a social media site. Um, it, Amazon is Microsoft. Oh, Microsoft. It's not a podcasting site. So, like, the the rationale for why some of their peers are getting into content. Um, the, their peers have different types of businesses than they do. It's just interesting, though, because what ultimately is the difference between content and gaming as as we merge into the future, right? Don't they sort well, of become the game, same thing? Maybe, but at the moment, I don't think gamers are watching that many TV shows. No, no, I don't think they are. But right. the, the games themselves are basically TV shows. They're becoming, yeah, they're becoming. Uh, Lyle and I saw a preview for something, and I literally for a while couldn't tell if it was a movie or a video game. It was a video game. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, but I, I, I've always strenuously avoided video games for the reason that I think I would do nothing but play video games if I started. If, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about uh, the the uh, the ruling by a judge in Florida um, throwing out the uh, the GOP's uh, election laws there that he described as racially discriminatory. Yeah. Um, pretty uh, pretty dramatic ruling. Well, here's sort of 288 the, pages. Yeah. Um, do you yeah. read stuff like that? Do you like the uh, decisions? Yeah. Not since law school. I, yeah. um, I have friends who do. It's funny. Really? Like they'll. Are I, they lawyers? Yeah, they're all lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the problem is, look, in law school, the thing that you do more than anything else is you read these really long cases, not 288 pages usually, but, but these long decisions, and then you have to find the holding of the case, which basically means buried inside those 40 pages of incredibly small font print, right. there's like three lines that are truly relevant, and everything else is basically you know, kind of collateral. And the thing that law school does well is it does train you to look at a broader issue and very quickly eliminate all the stuff that doesn't matter and narrow down to a couple of things that do matter, ask the right questions, and then use that to make a decision. So um, that's sort of a benefit of finding the holding of the case over and over again. But um, I don't feel like I need to reinforce that skill set. Okay. So, but, but here was, here's why, why I sent it to you. Yeah, and, and it, it, you also sent me the thing on the New York State judge who brought the Democrats' point. So, so go so, ahead. So here's the thing. It, it happened to be a Republican judge in New York and a Democrat judge in Florida, so maybe on appeals things get changed around. It. But, but, but what, what at least what maybe we're seeing, just the germs of, is two judges – and I bet if we look through the country, we'd find more examples. These just both jumped out at me. It's two, I guess the second and the third biggest states or third and fourth, something like that. Um, that individual judges on some level were saying, you know what? Fuck this. This system is so corrupt and so dirty that in Florida, they passed a law that made it basically impossible for everyone who is not uh, a Republican voter to, to vote or make it harder. In New York, they drew maps that defy any version of reality or gravity just to benefit Democratic candidates. And they're both so sleazy and so corrupt and so self-interested that I wonder if this isn't the beginning of some judges saying, you know what, I I'm just – I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. I'm not going to stand for it, and I have the power to do something about it. I might get overturned on appeal, but I have some power in this part in this process, and I'm going to use it. And maybe we're at the very beginning of, of a movement where pe regular people, not just sort of the people who um, you know, watch Fox News and MSNBC and get angry, but even – 
you know, people who are considered to be beneficiaries of the current system, like judges, um, just say, like, enough's enough, and it's at the beginning of something. Now, in the, in the Florida case where they're actually talking about the mechanics of voting, right, so they're talking about, like, drop boxes, and they're talking about, like, I, the, the, some of these issues that seem to be so, so uh, unimportant to me, like yeah. the f- snacks for people on, standing on line and, you know, bottles of water, like, just all these, like, really picky and... I, I have a solution to all these problems. No, I know you do, which is what I'm going to, I'm, I'm sort of asking, but, but, but your solution, the mobile voting, which I'm going to, um, we haven't talked about mobile voting in at least a couple of weeks, so you really? definitely have to... Yeah. We've gone that long? I think so. Yeah, so so I, I think you, I, I could see how mobile voting addresses the Florida situation really well, yeah. because you're just basically like, okay, like all this stuff at the polling places and all this is just so yeah. antiquarian. But but the but it, the it doesn't York, address gerrymandering, right? right. Like, how do you? No, I mean fundamentally to me, and a lot of the political reform community, I think really hates when I say this, but there are two ways to transformationally change and improve democracy. Um, either draw districts and therefore elections that are actually competitive and fair, right. or enable so many people to vote that the mainstream sort of reasserts its authority regardless of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, either of those things, if you radically did it, could probably work. However, a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court said they're really not going to take up redistricting. They, they see it as sort of a state-based issue and, and not their authority. And so, look, I, I've, been, I've been in legislatures that have drawn maps. I've watched this in my whole career. They're equally sleazy and self-interested. Um, and so it's just hard for me to see where gerrymandering reform really happens in a meaningful enough way to change the outcome. So then people say, well, what about top two and open primaries and final five and all these other things, uh, ranked choice voting, I'm for all of them. They're all great. They're very incremental. You know, maybe they slightly impact by one or two points and maybe move things slightly towards the center. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, you're still keeping the same totally broken system and preserving it and just trying to make it slightly better. Right. That's not going to fix the problem. Right. Um, do you want to talk about the labor organizing at Amazon Yeah, and I mean, I want to talk more around, I don't really know about so much about, Star, the only Starbucks story I read was in the journal today about Schultz kind of coming back in as, as CEO again. But um, oh, They just had that, that, I think it was up in Buffalo where they had some success. You're more focused on Buffalo than I am. <laughs> I do like Buffalo. Um, I do. So, but he, here's the point. It, it isn't to say that, you know, so Amazon workers on Staten Island voted to unionize uh, one warehouse, and there's another warehouse vote coming up soon, and then there's also in Bessemer, Alabama, um, there's been a constant fight over this, and I think there's been another another vote. So, uh, don't know the outcomes of those yet. It, it, the point here isn't to say it, that this is inherently good or bad. The point is that it's neither, right? In the sense of, like everything else in this incredibly polarized society, we have decided that either unions are holy and wonderful and beautiful or evil and despicable. And they're not either one of those things, right? Fundamentally, there are times where in a place of work, the employees will do better for themselves if they collectively organize and bargain, right? Right. And that's probably very much true in an Amazon warehouse situation. It's certainly true. Almost any kind of blue-collar work, you have to imagine that that's, that's basically true. Because the, the workers don't be, have much power individually? Yeah, because overall, the, the system is designed to increase profit margin by as much as possible. Workers are seen as somewhat fungible and replaceable, and therefore, cutting costs is, is the main priority, whereas in a knowledge-based business... Um, the workers are your resource, right? So you're generally speaking not going to behave that way because it'll drive them away. And for companies that do, they have a hard time keeping employees and therefore being 
successful. So, right? so ultimately, like unions are very good when they can deliver more value to the members than they can derive on their own. Right. But if you now flip over to so Amazon's engineers, not their warehouse workers, I don't really know what a union is going to do for those engineers who have incredible bargaining power every time they take a job, other than take a chunk out of their paycheck every single week for union dues, right? And so it, unions are not inherently good. They're not inherently bad. They are sometimes a very, very helpful tool right. for taking people who really need and deserve more and getting them more. And sometimes they're an incredibly destructive to, uh, tool, like the teachers' unions, which have, because we have a corrupt system where they are able to give money to campaigns and, and do grassroots and everything else, um, politicians are terrified of them. The money literally comes from taxpayer dollars. And so they're generally very rarely willing to defy them, and that results in a school system that is aimed at the interests of the adults in the system as opposed to the kids. So point just being this notion of, oh, it's good or it's bad, it's neither one. It's, it's in every individual case, it may prove to be better for the workers or it may not. Like I'll give you an example. When I worked for Mike Bloomberg in 2009, you know, we sought the endorsement of every union. We, we, we got a lot of them and get them all. But um, I remember in one of them, and it, they supported us too, but they said, um, hey, Mike, you know, uh, we took another shot at, at Bloomberg LP. And he's like, yeah, you're never going to win. And what they were saying is, and they admitted it, the people who work there are treated so well, they're like, why would I join a union? This is fantastic, right? I get benefits and snacks and all this shit. Like, I don't need you, right? Snacks. Yeah, yeah. snacks yeah. go a long way. So point being, in some environments, it's incredibly necessary. I suspect that is definitely the case here in Staten Island. In others, it's not. And to view this from a lens of anything other than, will this get the workers more than they would have gotten otherwise? and a cost-benefit analysis, anything other than that is the wrong approach. Um, I want to violate your uh, 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 certain firewall credo yeah. or rule um, and mention a story from the New York Times, if that's all right. We mention them. We just, I just then have to, by law, criticize them. <laughs> um, did, you, did you hear about this? Uh, they, they did a story over the weekend about uh, New York City prosecutors resigning. No. Um, so I guess the, the attrition rate, last year was like 20%. When you say New York City, do you mean DA? Do you mean yeah, City DA, of New yeah. York? No, oh, yeah, prosecutors for the city. Uh, well, they, they're different things. Oh. So I, the city agencies have lawyers that pursue at least civil litigation. Oh, no, right? this, these are, these are, these are Criminal uh, prosecutions. Yeah, district attorneys, okay. assistant DAs, I think. Um, but they, I was amazed. How many, how many prosecutors, do, uh, the prosecutorial staff, do you think, um, is in Manhattan and Brooklyn. How many how many prosecutors do you think they would Much employ? bigger than we think. So it was shocking how big it was. I bet there's a couple thousand lawyers in Manhattan, and oh, you know it's not that many. It's a five hundred each. Uh, yeah, Manhattan. okay. I mean, more they, thought, they, but yeah, actually, that's less than I thought. But yeah, there's a lot of crime. I mean, these are these are big boroughs, right? Brooklyn has two point three million people, something like that. Manhattan has you know less, but. It is during the course of the day more populated than anywhere because of all of the you know commuting and tourism and everything else. So, no, that's not surprising at all. But I, I think, what I a point that I wanted to ask you specifically about this, which is so, as public sector jobs go, like a prosecutor is a, a really good one, right? Like it's it's it, mm -hmm. it's traditionally carried a lot of respect. Yeah, a lot of people really want those jobs coming out of law school, um, yep. and if if those jobs are becoming like less attractive. Do you think that's like a like a um, uh, 
a symbol is the wrong word, but do you think it's an indication no. of public sector? I, I don't think it's it, it's a normative shift of any kind. I think okay. it is purely a reflection of the management of those offices. Okay. Right? In that people who choose to become a prosecutor do it because they say, I know I would make more money at a law firm. Right. But this is meaningful, fun, exciting interesting. I am overall happier doing this with less money right. than I would be in a miserable job at a law firm with a lot more money, right? But you have to keep that value proposition there for the lawyers in, in, the, in the prosecutors, right? If they don't feel any longer like it is meaningful or fun or interesting, then why wouldn't they go make three times as much money, right? And I think, you know, DAs may see themselves as these crusading, you know, social justice, you know, uh, warriors, but they're really managers, right? And you have to be able to sort of have good management so the talented people who don't need to work for you uh, and economically, from a logical standpoint, shouldn't be working for you, choose to do so anyway. And if all you can do is crusade about sort of the inequities of society and forget how to actually manage the 500 lawyers that work for you, um, the good ones are going to leave and you're going to do a shitty job regardless of your ideology. Um, we saved the sports for last so we don't turn off too many listeners. They can shut up everything now. else. Well, we, I think we covered enough. I mean, we we have other things, but um, but I think we're nearing okay. the 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 saturation point here. Um, so so there are two sports stories that we're going to just touch on. Yeah. One is just the same sad old story that we talk about all the time, which is the Mets. Um, and yeah. Let's. This is just me wanting to. I, I sent Hugo when Max Scherzer. Uh, was diagnosed with, with some hamstring problems yesterday, which means now DeGrom and Scherzer are both probably out for the beginning of the season. I sent a text to Hugo saying, I fucking told you so, right? Because yeah. when the Mets signed Max Scherzer, Hugo, we hadn't talked about it before, like asked me this question, thinking I was just going to be like ecstatically raving about how wonderful life is. Well, I just wanted to give you a chance yeah. to be optimistic. And, and I wasn't, and I think you were surprised. And my point is not that it's not great to have Max Scherzer. He's one of the greatest pitchers ever. But... It's the Mets, which means that, the, yes, would Scherzer and DeGrom, in whatever order, be one of the best one-two combinations in baseball history? Absolutely. It's the best baseball today? Absolutely. How many weeks in a row will they pitch together for healthy? Three, five? You would have thought maybe the beginning of the season, Yeah, though, right? right. So, yeah. like, it's great in theory, but this is the Mets, which means that, that theory and execution are two totally different things, which is why... I think even with all the money they spent, um, they're like an 87, 88 win team, and they, they may make the playoffs because it's expanded, but you know they are um, not, unfortunately, as good as we would hope. Now, nothing would make me happier than to be wrong about this, because I, I live and die every game, but um, I was skeptical before. And I Is Lyle skeptical. sort of contracting the same illness in terms um, of... No, like, not no? the same. He's into it. He watches. He really likes going, so I would say we probably go together to... Seven games a year, ten games a year, something like that. Um, and he'll watch it on TV with me, but he has less patience, to, you know, because he is a gamer to the point before. Like the pace of baseball for him is, is too slow. Too slow too to too just slow. sit and watch nine innings on TV. Um, so apparently, the Basketball Hall of Fame has now thrown in the towel and is just letting in merely good players as opposed to great players. Correct. Uh, uh, who are the two that were? Tim it, was Har- it was Tim, Tim Hardaway, Hardaway and Manu Ginobili. Manu so Ginobili. Ginobili, I would say yes. He was part of what five, four, cha- four exactly. championship yeah. teams. He's one of the most iconic foreign-born players in, in NBA history. Um, but he was, uh, I mean, I, I guess he was more than a role player. But he was, he was not the driving force of those teams. 
Well, here's the question. Would those Third best player, right? Right. But do those teams win four titles and however many finals appearances and whatever else, Western Conference finals, without, without Ginobili? The, the, view, the conventional view, at least, would be no. He was the glue that put it all together. Right. Um, and also that because he cares so much about winning, he sacrificed individual stats to do that. So right. on another team, he could have scored 25 a game um, and didn't because that's not what the Spurs needed from right. him for them to win. So I, I would say Ginobili's fine. Tim Hardaway, good basketball player. I think he made, I looked up, he made five all-star teams. To me, that is the literal definition of someone who belongs in the Hall of Very Good Players. Now, that doesn't exist. My friend Elliot Regenstein and I have been talking about this for the last 25 years. Do you years. want to start the Hall of Very Good Players? I've thought about it before. It just feels like a really stupid thing to do from an economic standpoint because it's, it's like a media business, right? It's not going to make any money. Um, <laughs> but... Um, Regardless you could of just put it in it like is. a conference room here, though. It doesn't have to be that yeah, big You could deal. just build a website, right? It would be, and, and just say, probably for like, if you put up 100 grand, you could probably like hire coders to just make a halfway decent interactive website. Uh, and maybe it would be cool. I don't know. Uh, I feel like I have enough going on right now without worrying about this. But, um, but. So Tim Hardaway makes your Hall of Very Good Players. The, fundamentally, the inherent value of sports is not the games themselves or the outcomes of the games themselves, right? Because the truth is the stakes are really fucking low. Like, who cares who won the Super Bowl, right? What matters is it creates connectivity among people. So right. when Abby and I were in Utah a couple weeks ago and we drove from Park City to the airport in Salt Lake, I don't know how we got to start talking about it, but the driver was a big sports fan, I'm a big sports fan, and we talked about sports for 40 minutes, right? right. Um, Wait, is it Abby just going crazy while no, you guys no, no, she was kind of listening oh, okay. and, you know, but... Um, probably on our phone, actually. But um, the point is this. It creates a way for people from every kind of background situation to connect if they like sports. They don't, they don't, right? right. But, but that's the value of this connectivity, right? And the connectivity, the reason why it matters is because you can have discussions about things that are fun to talk about, right? It's fun to talk about sports. It's fun to debate stuff. Um, but that means the underlying value has to be there. And I think that when you cheapen the Hall of Fame, whether it's baseball or basketball or anything else, to the point where anyone, you know, everyone gets a trophy and everyone gets in, basically, you're now in a world where you've made the whole thing just less meaningful and interesting, which means there's less to talk about, which means you're taking away something from the fans, whereas before they, someone could maybe argue, no, Tim Hardaway really does belong in the Hall of Fame, and you would then say, no, that's crazy, as opposed to now, like, well, let me ask you, just, like a, just the whole Hall of Fame feels less relevant. Why do you think this happens? Well, I mean, I don't mean just as, a, as it relates to, like, the Basketball Hall of Fame or the Baseball Hall of Fame. But just generally, why is there in institutions like this a kind of drift Towards away mediocrity. from? Yeah, well, and mediocrity might be too strong, but but certainly a a loosening of standards and a, a yeah, more. I, mean, I, th- I would think it's a few things, right? So one is we do to a certain extent live in a, everyone gets a trophy society, right? Right. Um, look, you have schools that are eliminating advanced classes because they don't want anyone to feel bad that they're not in the advanced classes, right? right? Like. Dumbing everything down is not the solution to fixing society, right? right? And yet a lot of people, going back to teachers' unions, they love that because if standards are incredibly low, then they can't be uh, failing them, right? right? And that's all I care about. So um, so one is the societal shift around sort of participation somehow equals success, which it does not in right. my view. Um, number two is... Uh, you know, there's this massive movement in sports over the last, since Bill James, I guess, the last 35 years or so, 40 years, um, towards a more analytical approach to sports. Uh, often what it means is that one set of writers are looking at one set of statistics and one are looking at another or just saying, I watched the guy play. I know whether or not he's a Hall of Famer, she's a Hall of Famer, whatever it is. Um, 
And the advanced analytics oftentimes will tell a different story than your eyeballs tell you. And as a result, people who you know, probably, in my view, don't belong in a Hall of Fame, perhaps when you look at their player efficiency rating or you know, their, whatever stat you want to look at, their B-war, baseball, whatever it is, that makes the argument for them. So I think yeah. it's a combination of there's a normative shift among uh, how experts analyze sports performance, and there's a societal shift around performance itself being somehow seen as, as good enough. And when you put those two things together, the fact that it's spread to sports Hall of Fame is not surprising. Yeah. Well, on that note, Bradley, um, we, we, I actually I have one other yeah. question on the on the Hall of Fame thing. I was thinking about because I, I noticed that Bob Huggins, the basketball coach, yeah. who's being college basketball Cincinnati. coach, he, Cincinnati was where he rose to prominence. He's now at West Virginia, West Virginia. But um, the thing interesting about Bob Huggins is that I mean he had a pretty checkered career. Uh, I mean he won a lot of games at Cincinnati, but they had a lot of problems with players. You know, did he kick somebody? I don't think he kicked someone that I'm aware of. He, I, I, I think that was not him. But, but he, basically, their big problem was that their players were constantly getting arrested, um, and then he got arrested for drunk driving, and then one of his assistant coaches got arrested. So he, whatever, he was just not this model of, you know. Yeah, he's not Coach K. He's not. He's not Coach K. So, does that matter? Should that matter? Like personal conduct? No. No. Um, okay. I, a few things. One. The only personal conduct that should matter is if you're cheating at the game itself. So I, under, I understand. I would put Bonson Clemens in the Hall of Fame, but I understand why there are voters who they were say cheating at the game itself. they were cheating at the game itself. Or if you're bet Pete Rose, you're betting on the game itself and right. you're managing a team, whatever it is. Um, if we were to say human character is a prerequisite for the Hall of Fame, you know, they'd both be about a third of the size that they are right now. That might be good for your— Maybe, but I, I, I think fundamentally— I, I don't know that you should be the kept Hall of Fame and good character for having a DUI. I do think though that guys right on the margin, if they are really, really wonderful people, can probably kind of inch their way in. Right. Because of that, but I don't know if it's character or just the the writers vote on it. And if some guy's a total dick to the writers all the time, like Barry Bonds was, it's it's they're gonna have a lot more animosity than if someone's really nice to them. Um till next week, Bradley. All right, man. Thank you. Who all do right. we have who do who we put on Thursday? Um, we're putting the guy from Shift Smart. You're gonna. Um, oh, that was really, that was really good. I really enjoyed that podcast. Yeah, it's coming out on Thursday. Cool. All right, please listen. All right, thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.